Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Devesh Rai. I'm internal medicine chief resident at Rochester General Hospital, and I will be staying here for my cardiology fellowship with an interest in multimodality imaging and advanced heart failure. I am also proud to be a cardio nerds academy fellow in House Thomas, as in legendary Dr. Vivian Thomas. Welcome back to our seventh episode, nuclear and complementary multimodality imaging series with Cleveland Clinic imaging experts Dr. Wild Jeber and future cardiovascular imager Dr. Erika Hutt. as well as Brigham Imaging Fellow Dr. Aldo Esquinone. Be sure to check out episodes 99, 101, 102, and 104 in which we discuss the evaluation of coronary ischemia, coronary microvascular disease, myocardial viability, and congenital abnormal coronaries including anomalous courses and myocardial bridges. In this fifth part, we learn about the multimodality imaging evaluation for cardiac amyloidosis. Make sure to check out the website for spectacular notes by my Cardio Notes Academy co-fellow Dr. Hussain Khalid and stay tuned for the future episodes where we will cover cardiac sarcoidosis and prostatic valve infections. We thank you for subscribing and supporting the Cardio Notes. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Cardinerds version of the Odyssey as we trod along our nuclear and multimodality imaging series. Our next patient is Laertes, Odysseus's aging father who now lives alone on a farm. After the tragic death of his wife Anticlea, he's overcome with grief over Odysseus's absence. Isolated from the world, he lives in despair and declining health. In the Cardinerds version, he shows up with progressive fatigue dyspnea on exertion, bloating, and symmetric leg edema. He stopped tending to his farm long ago due to back pain from severe lumbar spinal stenosis and inability to hold a hoe due to bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome. His past medical history includes systemic lupus erythematosus, which is in remission, for which he was on hydroxychloroquine in the past, but he had to stop it because of ocular toxicity. Unfortunately, he has been increasingly clumsy due to progressive polyneuropathy and fell in the barn 3 days ago, sustaining multiple left-sided rib fractures. In clinic, he's tachycardic, cachectic with positive S3 and S4 gallops. He has massively elevated JVP, 3 plus pitting edema in the legs with cool extremities. He has thinner atrophy on both hands. His EKG actually shows atrial fibrillation with RVR, low voltages. and septal q waves echo shows lv and rv wall hypertrophy with normal by v chamber size severe by atrial enlargement thickened av valves and interatrial septum as well as a small pericardial effusion needless to say i've got a very high suspicion for cardiac amyloid and the two predominant precursor proteins are antibody light chain produced by clonal plasma cells causing al amyloid versus transthyretin from the liver causing attr cardiac amyloidosis Of course, the latter can be mutant or wild type. Cardionerds will remember all of this from episodes number 7 to 10 and number 54. So, Hefe, what is your diagnostic approach in this patient with concerns for cardiac amyloidosis? This is patient is uh, since he's part of the, you know, the classics. He read the classic textbook 
So he read everything that can happen with a patient with uh, amyloid and presented to you on a silver platter, basically telling you this is what I have. So let's go back a little bit to what you described in the history that are suggestive of a diagnosis of amyloid heart disease. So you have a patient who is progressively weak, bilateral carpal tunnel more importantly. Now, of course, he's a farmer. He's prone to bilateral carpal tunnel because we have to keep that in mind. And he has a spinal stenosis. The overlap between spinal stenosis and amyloid actually is, is known, but we don't know the exact figures for that. Actually, one of the projects we're working on right now is to basically figure out how all the patients that presented to our institution with spinal stenosis and see how many of those were diagnosed with cardiac amyloid later on. Then uh, we have the cardiac manifestations. And in, in a clinical situation back then, they had a way to measure the blood pressure. Probably his blood pressure would be on the low side. And that would be unusual for a person who's older, you know, because most of these patients usually are hypertensive. So the way we have seen it in our clinic, when all the work with me or Amit now is working with me, is a lot of these patients will come in and you can see they're on a tapering down dose of blood pressure medications. So that's the first clue you have is you can see the patient is so happy that their blood pressure medications have been taken or they've been on a, let's say, on a blood pressure medication for a long time. And now their primary care doctor is telling them you don't need as much of an ACE inhibitor or a beta blocker or an ARB or a calcium channel blocker because your blood pressure suddenly normalized. So they think they're, they've been drinking from the fountain of youth. It's amyloid, unfortunately. Then the other thing is you can see the signs and symptoms of heart failure. Uh, you have these patients with signs of left and right-sided heart failure. Then you go to the uh, electric side of it, which is the atrial fibrillation. A lot of overlap in that population between amyloid and AFib. And that could be both as a manifestation of infiltration of the atria with the disease or because this is the same age group that has, you know, this older population, especially with TTR. Vavil, you described the echo findings. You described everything that can fit with that. Now you need a way to confirm it, right? So besides the blood work, which you've done to rule out the AL, in the past, maybe before 2009, 2010, the only way to do it is to do, we used to do, you know, fat pad biopsy, all the stuff, and the yield was very low. If this patient has had carpal tunnel surgery, you see usually if you send that for staining, but that's what we do right now routinely at our institution is we send those post-carpal tunnel surgery tissue for staining and that usually will lead to seeing amyloid deposits in that. And the next step is basically to do a biopsy. Now, since that's a procedure that's risky, it needs special skills, it needs institutional support, it's not done everywhere. We have moved in the past, I would say, maybe 12 years from that to doing imaging for those patients. Now, you can start with the echo and look at more sophisticated measures with echo, such as uh, strain imaging and global longitudinal strain, GLS. Good sensitivity, but I think specificity has been declining over time because we're finding a lot of things mimicking the finding on amyloid, which is the apical sparing by GLS. The test that has the highest sensitivity, specificity, and probably shortcut to uh, to diagnosis is uh, technetium pyrophosphate scanning, which it's a bone tracer that we stumbled on. It used to be used back in the 70s for uh, infarct imaging, basically patients presenting with acute myocardial infarction. Back then, remember, we didn't have echocardiography in the 70s. I wasn't there, so I'm just telling you what happened. <laughs> so we did not have echo. We did not have MRI. So the only way we can measure the size of the infarct is send these patients right in the acute setting for uh, technetium pyrophosphate scans. And if you look at the Medicare database or CMS back then, it used to be called the infarct study. So if you want to order the test, you will have to order it as an infarct study test. So you did not order it as an amyloid test. So the Japanese and the French have been using it on and off in small theories, 10, 15 patients here and there for, for diagnosed amyloid. And then this exploded back in 2009, 2010 with a simultaneous report from Europe 
with using technetium dipyrophosphate. And in the U.S., where we have uh, FDA-approved technetium pyrophosphate, showing that patients with DTR amyloid, this test is, is superb. There is no reason why you should have myocardial uptake of technetium pyrophosphate unless you have uh, DTR amyloidosis. There are some caveats, especially what Amit mentioned earlier, the hydroxychloroquine. That's a huge issue. Uh, we don't know what's the overlap between amyloid and hydroxychloroquine. There are a couple of case reports that I reviewed, submitted to journals, showing that patients who have on chronic treatment with hydroxychloroquine can have uptake of technetium pyrophosphate and then can, can present with restrictive cardiomyopathy, but that's a different thing. But if you take the general population with amyloid, technetium pyrophosphate scanning done properly can have a, a sensitivity and specificity up in the 99 to 100%. We will talk about some caveats later, but that's my test of choice. I will send this patient. This is a test that doesn't require fasting, doesn't require stopping any medications, doesn't require any pre-testing input from the patient. All we do is we put the order, we call the nuclear lab downstairs, they bring the patient down, they inject them with a tracer, and they image them at three hours. We at the Cleveland Clinic have been doing a SPECT CT on all these patients since uh, the beginning, since 2009, 2010. We've never done a planar imaging alone for these patients. You can do planar imaging, which is basically like a chest x-ray AP. You can do a SPECT without CT, like we do with generally with myocardial uh, perfusion imaging. Uh, but since all our cameras have C are CT equipped, so we've been, from the beginning, we've done uh, SPECT CT on these patients. And then the diagnosis can be made readily. If we have the uptake is there in the heart, if the ratios are properly high, Cutoffs are still in this dispute, but let's say it's his uptake is 1.7. And then if we confirm on SPECT CT that the uptake is in the myocardium, not in the blood pool, then the diagnosis is made and we're done. Wow, Hefe, I got to say you're such a good teacher. You just answered most of the questions I actually had. So we've come to generally think that the PYP scan has a very high sensitivity and specificity, as you just said. And we know that in patients that you have a high clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis, and again, in those that you know have a negative serum-free light chain and immunofixation labs, that a positive test basically rules in the disease. So Hefe, what are some of the caveats of the PYP scan? So PYP scanning, the issues become is with better understanding of disease, one of the beautiful things about medicine is we can live revisionist history all the time and be actually so confident with it. So a lot of things in life, let's say if you study, you know, in general, let's say physics or chemistry or stuff like that, the general things are usually acceptable. And every couple of hundred years, you get some revolutionary theory about these things. In medicine, fortunately for us, these things happen at a fast speed. And we should adjust our understanding of these things as more data come up. So the initial reports I mentioned from 2009, 2010, 2011 on the sensitivity and specificity of technetium pyrophosphate, they come from relatively large centers, so centers of ex expertise in amyloid where they have a high referral base, and they come from population uh, of patients who presented like our patient here, presented with heart failure, presented with almost end-stage disease. So with end-stage disease, it's expected that all the manifestations of disease, such as the clinical signs and symptoms, plus the imaging side, are going to be easy uh, to read and interpret, right? So uh, all that what we know about amyloid and how it's diagnosed by technetium pyrophosphate, or even by MRI, for that matter, come from patients who presented with clinical symptoms. Now, with that, we have evolved now, and we have found out that we can diagnose this very readily or easily. And now, the, the problem with that is... Now we're finding patient with, let's say, with amyloid, and we're finding, okay, let's talk about the the uh, the mutant type, or let's say talk about the genetic type, and all the, all these patients. So we're now bringing their family members who are completely asymptomatic. 
So we're bringing those people who are 50, 55, 60 years old, or, you know, be probably younger and saying, okay, you have the genetic marker, your brother or your sister or your mother or your father had it. We're testing them genetically. We're finding they're positive. And now we're saying, okay, let's apply the technology we used for the patients with clinical manifestation of amyloid and see if this test works. Now, we do not know if these tests works for those patients. No center, not ours or any of the centers in the country or in Europe, has tested patients who are class one heart failure or stage A disease where they're at risk for the disease, but they're not manifesting the disease. So we don't have 2,000 patients who were sent for MRI or technician pyrophosphate scanning. And we don't have those patients and we don't know the sensitivity of the test in in that population. So that's on the sensitivity side. So sensitivity works very well when you have the disease and you're done. The sensitivity, we don't know how it works in that population. Now on the specificity side, so what are the things that can look like amyloid, but they're not amyloid? So the first thing you can think of, this patient actually that you guys presented, this patient had rib fractures. Let's hope these rib fractures, let's say they're on the left side of the chest. Now this is a bone imaging test, right? So you give the the tracer, the tracer is going to go where there's active bone regeneration and the left ribs are going to light up. And you're going to put that uh, circle of interest or a region of interest around it, and it's going to be over the heart. It's going to overlap the heart and the planar images. So that's going to inflate the counts there. And you're going to do the heart-to-contralateral ratio, and you're going to find that this patient has 1.8, 1.9, because of that activity from the ribs. So we're going to misdiagnose this as, I mean, if we just use planar images. That's why we have to use SPECT and SPECT CT. If they were on the right side of the chest... So now imagine you're putting the region of interest on the left side of the chest and the counts are whatever they are. Let's say they're 25, the mean counts. And you put them on the right side of the chest and now they're going to be, let's say, 70 there because you have all these ribs that are uh, lighting up there. And you're going to do the ratios and the ratio is going to be down, right? And now you're going to miss the diagnosis of amyloid in this patient because uh, you relied on the heart to contralateral ratio. These are the things that you have to keep in mind. Another issue is if this patient's ejection fraction, we're noticing more and more right now, patients with ejection fraction under, let's say, 50 or 40 percent, they have a lot of persistent blood pool. Erica, you and I were reading this week, Nuclear, and you, we, I showed you a couple of examples of patients who came in, and even at three hours, there was a persistent blood pool. And when you do the SPECT CT on these patients, you will see no uptake in the myocardium. All the uptake actually is in the atria and the left and right ventricle in the cavities. If you put a heart to contralateral ratio, just a circle or region of interest, again, you're not going to get 1.9 ratios, but you're going to get 1.3, 1.4 ratios in that range. And those patients can be misdiagnosed as amyloid. So these are the caveats that can go with that test. Now, so these are the things that on on the diagnostic side, we are going right now into a territory that is uncharted, which is pre-symptomatic patients, and then some of the technical aspects of doing the test properly. You should not, I think, even if you're starting fresh, you should not be doing this test without a SPECT CT. You will be sending patients to therapy that's cost of anywhere between two twenty-five dollars to $250,000 per year for a disease they don't have. So that's uh, the, the price downstream for these patients if they're misdiagnosed. So I've been advocating for, since the beginning, myself, Mazhana, all the people who work at the clinic have been advocating for SPECT CT on these patients. You know, this is not a trivial thing to misdiagnose these patients just by using planar. Nobody, like let's say we have right now CT scanning for the chest and we're still using chest x-ray just because we don't want to use the CT. Imagine any hospital would be doing that. We should not be doing that. So these are the, the things I can think of right now as far as answering your question. Hefe, like with any test, it's so helpful to understand what are the caveats for 
the accuracy, right? What's a false positive rate? What's a false negative rate? And I really appreciate the historical context. When I first learned about the PYP scan, I thought, wow, what a magic diagnostic bullet, right? I mean, it's like nearly 100% sensitive, nearly 100% sensitive. What do we have like that? But really to optimize the accuracy, we have to look at the right patients. And like, as Erica said, the right patient in which we see this high accuracy is a patient who has a high clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis based on clinical history and maybe echo findings, as well as a patient who's had negative laboratory workup for AL amyloidosis with serum-free light chains and immunofixation labs. And so, so far we've been over, you can get a false positive test if you have a blood pool or rib fractures, if you're only doing planar imaging without a concordant CT scan to see where the uptake actually is. And you also mentioned we can have a false positive test in a patient with hydroxychloroquine cardiotoxicity, which can also present similarly with restrictive cardiomyopathy, which may be relevant for this patient. What are some other situations in which we might see a false positive rate or a false negative rate that we might want to keep in mind? So let's talk with this false negative rate. Two weeks ago, I was... uh reading a scan. The patient has had a large anterior wall myocardial infarction years and years ago, and now he presents with uh, heart failure. And it was appropriately so attributable to his uh, low ejection fraction manifestation of ischemic cardiomyopathy. However, also the uh, clinician who sent him to us uh, saw that the patient had a five or six years ago bilateral carpal tunnel uh, surgery. So uh, they ruled out AL, and they sent the patient for a technician pyrophosphate scan. Actually, after they ruled out ischemia, so they sent the patient for a PET scan. The PET scan showed scar in the LAD territory, and then they sent the patient for a technician pyrophosphate scan. I was one of those people who were cynical at that point, as I'm always. And they, I looked, I said, wow, they, they're ordering every test possible on this patient. So I saw the echo. I looked at the, the PET, and I said, okay, what are we doing here? Like, that's, that's the last thing. So as we were looking at it, I did the we did the technician pyrophosphate scan. And now remember when we talked about earlier, this is a good agent to image the infarct area in the acute setting, right? But it's not after about maybe one or two weeks, it will not be able to image the infarct area. So after two weeks, you should not have any technician pyrophosphate uptake in the infarct zone. So now this person has had a myocardial infarction years ago, comes down to the lab, we do a heart to contralateral ratio. It's about 1.1, 1.2. This is on the planar images. Then we, we go and look at the SPECT CT images. And what we see is actually a beautiful thing. So you have technetium pyrophosphate uptake in all the normal zones of the myocardium. So in the lateral wall, in the inferior wall, in the basal septum. And we have no technetium pyrophosphate uptake in the dead zone. This is something we reported also as a couple of case reports uh, recently. We had one with CIRC infarct, one with LAD infarct before this, I think we reported it last year. So we looked at it and we said, wow, so you don't expect the technetium pyrophosphate or the amyloid to infiltrate a dead zone, right? So now when you're doing the ratios, you're doing the ratios based on the lateral wall that's normal, so-called normal because it's not ischemic, and the septum and the inferior wall. So the ratios are going to be misconstrued as low, whereas if you look at the SPECT imaging, you're going to see that actually this patient has amyloid. So the patient not only has uptake in the normal zones of the myocardium, has uptake in the right ventricle too. So these are the, this is one situation when relying on the ratios can uh, lead you down the wrong path, which is ruling out amyloid where the patient has amyloid. So make sure that the patient, if they had a prior infarct, again, look at the SPECT CT images and the ratios will mislead you. So that's, that's one. Now we're learning about some genetic mutations where we don't know. Because remember, this is a rare disease And genetic mutations are so variable in this disease, there's a wide spectrum of a fan of genetic diseases or genetic codes for this disease. So we don't know how it works in all these entities in regional, the Italian variant, the Portuguese variant, the 
you know, the African-American Caribbean variants, we, we do not know how it works specifically in each of these things. And I'm not, I'm no expert on that, but I don't think the sensitivity is equal in all these genetic presentations. But the other issue is if you have a patient who you just saw, and let's say their brother or sister has had a clinical manifestation of cardiac amyloid and you tested them genetically, or they came through the carpal tunnel program and you tested them, you did a technician pyrophosphate scan and it's negative. But you know these patients because of their family history and because of the genetic mutation that are at a very high risk of developing cardiac amyloid. You did a technician pyrophosphate, it's negative. You did an MRI, it's negative. You did an echo, it's negative. You did an EKG, it's negative. You measured the troponins, they're negative. You measured the BMP, it's normal. One, we do not know if we should treat these patients because they're at a very high risk. Two, we do not know when to re-image them. How often do we re-image them with all these things? Do we re-scan them with the CT, the MRI, the whatever, whatever, the EKG, the technician, or do we just leave them alone till they develop clinical manifestation? So we don't know. Really, we don't know. We have one patient we reported uh, this past year in the European Heart Journal of a patient who came in to see Dr. Hanna in our uh, amyloid center, and the patient has every single test possible. And the test was, all the tests were negative, except that she had the genetic mutation and she has the family history. Three years later, she's still asymptomatic. She had EKG in the normal. She had an echo, which was normal. MRI was normal. Everything was normal on this patient. And the blood tests were normal. So we repeated the, the technician pyrophosphate scan because she was part of a study we're doing on imaging these patients with PET. And the test turned positive. So this was probably the first, what we call, conversion of a test from negative to a positive in a patient ever reported. So now I'm not saying we should repeat these tests every three, four years, but this is at least a glimpse that this test is not static. It can change over time. This is over three years. It's a very interesting case, actually. Now, based on the test, she's going to be treated. So now we have a positive test that would say, okay, we should treat this patient. So these are the, the things that you have to keep in mind. We just at the surface of this disease as far as imaging and all this stuff, because we're concerned with the clinical disease. Once we start dealing with preclinical disease, that's another problem. The other issue is the issue of do these tests, specifically technician pyrophosphate, we'll talk about MRI later, but technician pyrophosphate, does it change with treatment? So that's something that Aldo and I discussed many times before in the past. If we take a patient today and they're on treatment for a year or two with the famidus or whatever, do we have to repeat the test or do we just rely on the clinical syndrome? I, I, I think the, the reason to repeat the test is not because, you know, we want to make sure the treatment is working. We can figure out the treatment is working if we, you know, if we take these patients and do a six-minute walk test and if they're telling us where they're doing better, right? But for future clinical trials, do we have to wait five years to figure out if a medication works or do we have an imaging surrogate to tell us that, that the medication works? So this is when imaging probably with a functional test can act as surrogates for, instead of waiting for a survival analysis trial, we can use this for them. You know, this conversation alone is such a testament to the progress that's been made in this field, right? I mean, we're talking about a disease that was once thought to be rare and a disease in which the diagnosis was deterministic, right? You made the diagnosis, you had nothing to offer. You say, let's, you know, give you furosemide and call it a day. You know, now we're talking about the advent of maybe even diagnosing preclinical disease, instituting proven therapies early on, and just changing the trajectory. Forget about treating the symptoms. It's really amazing. But in terms of how we get to the, the diagnosis in a symptomatic patient with clinical manifestations, as with our patient, we started off with taking in the clinical picture. Right? So the first step was we build our clinical suspicion for amyloidosis with a high index of suspicion based on both cardiac manifestations, 
and extracardiac manifestations. With the cardiac manifestations, we know that amyloid can deposit in every layer of the tissues, right? Pericardial, the electrical system, the valves, the myocardium, and within the coronary bed, right? And so we take all that in and we look at the extracardiac manifestations, which will help you kind of even understand is, is it more likely to be AL amyloid, which can deposit everywhere in the body, you know, really except for the CNS? Or is it ATTR amyloid where Apart from the heart, you may impact the nerves depending on the mutation involved, as well as specific MSK issues like our patient had lumbar spinal stenosis, carpal tunnel syndrome, as well as maybe biceps tendon rupture. So we build our clinical suspicion. And then the first thing we do is we, we test for AL amyloid because as I remember Dr. Kremer reminded us, missing AL amyloid in our mind should be as egregious as missing a STEMI, right? Because you really, you're missing cancer. It's a terrible prognosis if you have the, the end stages. And so we look at our AL amyloid labs. We've ruled that out with serum-free light chains for immunofixation. Or if you rule it in, you know, trajectory is different. We have to get a biopsy. Tissue is the issue there. Alternatively, if those labs are negative, then we're on a totally different track. Here we can, in that patient with a high suspicion and negative AL labs, we can essentially make an imaging diagnosis without the need for a biopsy. So it's really phenomenal. So getting back to our patient, we have a high index of suspicion, and Erica sent the labs. The kappa and lambda serum-free light chains are normal. Serum and urine immunofixation studies are all negative, unrevealing. And the PYP scan shows grade one uptake with a heart to contralateral ratio of 1.2. So certainly in the moderate range and not a slam dunk positive results. On further history taking, though, we found out that his father, the king of Ithaca, Arcesius, was known among cardioners to have a valine-30-methionine mutant ATTR amyloid neuropathy. And thinking back to the false negatives, this was one of the mutations that's been associated with a false negative rate, especially later in life. So our suspicion for ATTR cardiac amyloidosis is still quite higher. And this guy's got the mutation and this guy's got the clinical manifestations. So Aldo, before diving into the RV septum with the bioptomes for an endomyocardial biopsy, are there any other imaging modalities that might help us support our concern for cardiac amyloidosis? I mean, I think that's a very important question, and, and we're going to get into the details and, and how we can use advanced imaging to better evaluate this patient. But before we get into that, I, I just want to kind of emphasize in some of the important concepts and how imaging helps in evaluating this patient with uh, concern for amyloid. I think number one, imaging should help us in, in diagnosing the patient first. And again, imaging is not a yes and no, you have it, you don't have it. It's you have a finding that is highly supportive of, and you need to interpret that in the context of the patient, as well as any particular negative findings. So the clinical suspicion is, is very important. But first, once you diagnose the patient with the help of imaging, the second question that you need to answer is, is this patient having AL or having TTR uh, kind of amyloid? And that's very important, as you well pointed out. Uh, if your patient is having AL amyloid, that's kind of an emergency, and, and this patient needs to be referred and, and initiated in treatment right away. So imaging, along with clinical presentation and, and labs, as we're going to see in, in a moment, can help you make the distinction of the type of, of the amyloid. And finally, I think techniques evolve from an imaging perspective, and, and we learn more about the disease, and we get more referrals, and we get more data about these. As Hefe already kind of pointed out, I think we can use imaging to monitor the disease, not only from a clinical standpoint, uh, to correlate with improvement in, in symptoms and quality of life and all kinds of other factors with potential reduction in the potential amount of amyloid fibrils that the patient might have based on kind of nuclear scans or even for research, as, as we already kind of discussed, trying not to wait too long for, for effective therapy. So, so those are the three main points that imaging should comment on and should help us. 
So getting back to our patient, this is a patient that, again, we start with, a, as you say, very high suspicion based on clinical presentation, but we rule out AL amyloid by in the presence of a, a negative serum-free light change and with normal ratios and, and normal fixation labs. And we decided to go ahead with the PYP scan. And as we well know, grade one uptake is kind of equivocal. You know, the finest are positive when we have the same optic as RIP is grade two or above, which is grade three. And when we use the contralateral ratio, it all depends a little bit of when you image the patient, you know, early on or a little later, like, you know, three hours or versus one or one point. 0.5 hours and, and that changes, but this is a little under that threshold of, you know, 1.3, 1.5. And as, as we already discussed, it's very debatable, but this is not an a slam dunk, we're done diagnose type of situation. And as we already discussed, this patient carries the, the mutation, a valine 30 methionine that has been reported to present with a false negative PYP scan. So in this setting, what do we do and how we can get to that diagnosis and secure the diagnosis with the help of, of imaging? So before we get into the MRI, which is probably is kind of the, the next big step, I think it's also important to go back and review the echo. And that's also going to help us with the clinical suspicion for this patient. So as we briefly discussed on echocardiography, uh, what we're going to find is some of these patients had either normal or mildly depressed EF. We see right out of the bat when you see in your, in your four chamber that the base of the heart it might not be functioning as good as the apical segment. So there's a relatively improving in the function in the apex compared to the base. And, and that's what we're going to see in a little bit when we talk about strain. We see that the, the walls are thick, uh, both the LD and the RV, and especially in advanced disease. And when we correlate that with the ECG, we're going to see that the walls are too thick to, to the amount of voltage that this patient has in the ECG, suggesting there's some sort of infiltration. One thing that if you go back and read in the, the literature, people keep talking about the, the speckle pattern that the, that the myocardium can have. And that's something that it was well described prior to the harmonics imaging on, on echo. Now with harmonic, which is kind of a new technique of imaging, it's not that specific or important given that the harmonic itself can give you a little bit of that pattern. So that's important to you know, have in mind. The other thing is you can look at the inflow patterns and, and see that the patient has a restricted pattern, you, you know, with kind of high E to the A wave. And this patient often have atrial fibrillation and a little bit of a small percardial effusion. So that's kind of the, the initial assessment along with your clinical suspicion, rises the suspicion for amyloid. We know from the paper by Dermot Phelan and, and the group at the clinic that the best discriminator, at least from an echocardiography, in terms of discriminating, and I think this is an important point, discriminating amyloid versus either ACM or stenosis or hypertensive heart disease is this this particular parameter of strain that we're going to talk in a second was not it's just not against everything it's just uh, it was compared against these particular entities that can mimic cardiac amyloidosis when they look into these in uh, up to 55 patients they found that you know the presence of uh, what they call as an apical sparing or cherry on top meaning that that longitudinal function of the LB was better at the apex with more deformation compared to the base, it was highly suggestive and specific and, and sensitive for the diagnosis of amyloid when you compare to patients with ACM or stenosis of hypertension heart disease. So I think it's important when we do the echo, we see all these features that suggest amyloid. We have a patient that present with kind of classical book presentation of amyloid with all the risk factors under the sun. Then, then you see these things, you proceed with the, the strain analysis, I think is going to be key, is going to be important. Another important point uh, that we already mentioned a little bit is that 
I mean, some of these data derived from, from patients that were advanced in, in the disease. So people that were kind of really already diagnosed by just the presentations and how the, the heart looked as we were learning about the disease. But now as, as the awareness of the disease is growing and, and we are referring patients earlier in the disease process, uh, even in the preclinical state, the performance of the uh, epical strain might not be as good. And, and we need to be cognizant of that, that early in the disease, we might not be seeing this pattern and should not dissuade you to pursue further evaluation if the suspicion is, is high. So I guess as we are reading and reporting some of these findings in ECHO, it would be nice to standardize the reporting and, and suggest or, or report ECHO as either not suggestive, equivocal, or strongly suggestive of amyloid so that the clinician in the other end of the care can proceed with further evaluation as needed. And, and sometimes we see patients that are referred to us with HEFPEF, and it's in the first evaluation with echocardiography that we see these features, and we should be uh, aware of those and, 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 and initiate and trigger uh, strain imaging and, again, initiate the suspicion for potential amyloid. Wow, Aldo, that's a great explanation. And I like your suggestion on reporting echoes based on clinical suspicion or imaging suspicion of cardiac amyloid. But what is the role of cardiac MRI in patients with amyloid? And what are we looking in an MRI that could be suggestive of amyloid? Absolutely, Erica. I think that's an important point to discuss. So now getting to MRI and that kind of uh, linked to the question that Amit posted before and how we can help this patient. So MRI is a very sensitive and specific technique for the uh, assessment of cardiac amyloidosis. Similar to the echo, what we look in cardiac MRI when we're evaluating this patient is, again, we're looking at the wall thickness uh, and this diffuse increase in wall thickness. And when we see the function, we see that basal to apical gradient as well that we just discussed. We see the effusion, but, but beyond that, I think MRI has the power to look into uh, tissue characterization. And with the use of, of gadolinium, we can see if there's any area of the myocardium that has any evidence of scar. So we know from, from studies that, first of all, as the, the fibril deposit into the myocardium, there's edema, there's infiltration, and, and by doing so, increases the space between the cells, what we call the extracellular space. And all that inflammation and, and increasing the, in the space and so forth or is going to translate into what we call elevators in T1 times. So the T1 relaxation uh, is something that we look with MRI. And I don't, I don't want to get too deep into this concept, but basically as the, the times prolong compared to normal myocardium, is, it reflects that there's either edema or there's diffuse fibrosis. So classically in, in amyloid, what we see is that this relaxation time in T1 are very prolonged. And also the space, again, between the cells and the extracellular volume, because the fibers are there, there's fibrosis and, and so forth, is significantly increased. So, so first we see that as an early sign that there might be some deposition and, and some from the amyloid fibers creating damage. Although the increase in, in T1 times and the increase in the extracellular volume is not specific for amyloid, anything that can give you inflammation in the myocardium or, or fibrosis, diffuse fibrosis can do that. We know that to the, the extent or the degree of elevation that we get in amyloid uh, is far beyond what we see with other pathologies. So if you see a really elevated T1 times or the relaxation time of the myocardium and massive increase in the extracellular volume in the 40 and 50%, the suspicion for amyloid is very high. The second thing is, is as you see contrast, as I mentioned, the, the gadolinium is going to deposit as a, an extra cellular agent into those areas that has been expanded in areas of fibrosis or a series of kind of inflammation. And, and, and the classic deposition of the, 
of the amyloid fibers and the fibrosis that follows that is usually in the subendocardium. So the classic pattern that we see in these patients is this diffuse subendocardial LG or legal genome enhancement uh, uh, that we see. Sometimes as the disease progress, we see that that subendocardial can actually transform or progress into more like actually neurotransmural as the disease is more advanced. So when we put together... I think we have a better ability and, and a higher sensitivity to look for uh, a presence of, of amyloid with cardiac MRI using these kind of parameters. You know, what is important here to mention is that cardiac MR doesn't have the power as of now to really discriminate between AL or uh, TTR amyloid. So both present the same way. You have the same diffuse subendocardial with the changes in T1 timing. So it's not something that you can use to say this patient has TTR or has uh, AL amyloid. There's some papers out there saying that, well, you know, AL is a little bit more aggressive of a pathology. So these people tend to have a little less uh, increase in the wall thickness and a little more subendocardial LGE because it's, it's a relatively acute process. Uh, you might have actually evidence of edema along with the fibrosis by looking at what we call T2 imaging, which is particularly to look for increments of water and edema. While when you compare to TTR, which is a more indolent process, a process that takes years to develop, the heart is able to cope a little bit better. So you tend to have more LDE, maybe transmural LDE, you know, uh, increase or way uh, bigger increments in, in wall thickness. So there's a little bit to kind of suspect that one versus the other, but I think as a home point, I think helping make the diagnosis of amylo, but not so much make the differentiation between both. Well, Aldo, that was a beautiful description of the role of cardiac MRI in the diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis. And it was very helpful for our patient because he was very reluctant to go for an endomyocardial biopsy given the borderline results from our PYP scan. So he did get a cardiac MRI, which was concerning for cardiac amyloidosis, subsequently had an endomyocardial biopsy, which showed apple green birefringence concerning for amyloidosis. Mass spectroscopy identified it as ATTR, and mutational analysis showed that it was the valine 30 methionine consistent with his father's history. So it's very helpful. Subsequent to this, he's, he got plugged in with heart failure and he's getting appropriately treated with tifamidus. To end the story, Odysseus finally returned home. And so at least our patient here was no longer lonely and was able to go back to tending his farm. We covered a lot of ground in the approach to diagnosing cardiac amyloidosis. Aldo, what are the main takeaways for us? Yes, I mean, I, th I think it's important to go back and summarize a little bit what we discussed in the management and evaluation of this patient. I think number one, the clinical suspicion is number one. You know, evaluate your patient, your symptoms, your ECG, and also the echocardiogram, looking at 2D images, inflow patterns, and also a strain analysis when indicated. That should trigger further workup. I think before you get into the pathway of getting PYP or, or getting any of your testing, I think it's important to rule out the presence of any blood cell dyscrasia. Doing a free light change analysis and immunification is key. I think it's an important point here to make that UPEP and SPEP is not enough. It's important to do a free light change analysis and, and get the ratio. And I think that's key. So once you get that, then can really guide you. If that's uh, positive, then you're kind of in the route of suspecting AL amyloid. If that's negative, then your suspicions uh, goes to uh, more TTR. 
So if you go through the route of, of PYP scan, as, as we did in this patient with uh, a negative light change, then if that's positive, that really kind of confirms your suspicions of cardiac amyloidosis with TTR and you're done. You can I- initiate treatment. Uh, if that's negative, you need to go through the pearls and, and all the different caveats that we discussed when that could be a false negative. The same that when it's positive, you need to go to the what could be the potential of false positive. So if the PYP is negative and you have a high suspicion, then cardiac MRI could be of great help to really delineate the presence of cardiac amyloidosis. If that's negative, and but your suspicion is pretty high, and maybe you're catching the, the patient in, kind of in an early process of the disease, and you're still you know, concerned and suspecting there is amyloid, then you can go for biopsy in kind of those patients. And this is kind of discussing a little bit about what we discussed in the realm of TTR. When you get you to the AAL, I think MR can, can help you in identifying the presence of cardiac involvement. But I think biopsy plays a, a, a more important role here in securing the diagnosis of cardiac involvement by AR. Thank you, Aldo. That was a great summary of everything that we just reviewed. And I want to thank Hefe as well for all the teaching he just provided us with and for this excellent case with a, a lot of weird history, but I really enjoyed it. That was such a great discussion about multimodality imaging to investigate cardiac amyloidosis. For a deep dive into cardiac amyloidosis, check out the episodes 7, 8, 9, 10, and 54. And be sure to stay tuned for the next episode in this series as we dive into the fiery world of cardiac sarcoidosis.